welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make, with your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash why make podcast or the Patreon link on our website. In this episode of Why Make, we talk with John Nakashima, a filmmaker who has just completed a beautiful documentary about his uncle, the innovative woodworker George Nakashima. John has spent the last 20 years researching and filming George Nakashima Woodworker, a film which provides some fascinating insight into George's life and design aesthetic. It is the only comprehensive documentary ever to be produced about his uncle. Becoming a maker in the process of making is a journey of self-discovery. This documentary does a wonderful job of telling the story about the path George took to becoming a woodworker. Here is our conversation with John Nakashima. You know, I'd like to make a formal welcome to John Nakashima to the Why Make podcast. Welcome to Why Make, John. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, John Nakashima is the nephew of George Nakashima. A a nephew. A nephew, right? Not the nephew. A nephew of George Nakashima. And he just completed a wonderful documentary about his uncle. And I think in your documentary, you elucidate better than probably anybody why your uncle made and sort of getting at at the kernel of what making is all about. And it's a, it's a journey and it's a different journey for everybody, but uh, it's, it's a wonderful documentary. And so I'd, I'd like to give you an opportunity to shamelessly plug it and say where people can see it. Well, they can go to nakashimadocumentary.com and they can buy, you know, a Blu-ray. They can buy a, um, a, a DVD with extras, which I just finished. And the, uh, the extras are a half hour long, and I could, couldn't help myself. I made it into like a little documentary. It's very interesting because uh, even though I am a documentary film buff, technically I don't know that much about documentary film. Well, I, I, I began editing this on an Avid that were like, back then they were about $100,000, the big ones. And I got an Avid from a... Uh, avid dumpster diver um who who got it out of the dumpster behind the avid uh, factory oh wow yeah. and, and, uh, and we are we are talking about a room size editing machine <laughs> well not room size not, not room size but they were very large i remember no vacuum tubes or anything no vacuum tubes but <laughs> considerably bigger than today people just do all the editing on their macbook pros and a and a you know a, and another monitor right it, it was a monster Somebody dumpster dove it? That's fantastic. It had Avid Corporation stickers on it. I mean, it was like... Wow. <laughs> it, is, it, it is very interesting how the, the technology and film has changed. And, of course, the technology period has changed. I mean, we're able to do this. Um, we wouldn't have been able to do this 10, 15 years ago. Um, right. You know. Although, although quaintly, I mean, one of the things Rob and I did talk about is that we started doing this podcast. The whole idea was to visit people in their environments, to go to their studios and talk to them. And it wasn't so much the pandemic that shot us down. It was the fact that we didn't have any money to go out on the road all the time and take all our equipment. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's that. <laughs> so, John, I think one of, the, one of the ways that we want to approach kind of getting into this podcast with you is not just to talk about the movie that you made and your uncle, because we will talk about that, but we're also interested in what inspired you to make your career as a filmmaker and what led you up to where you are now. So we're going to, we're going to kind of go back a ways and, 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 and start with how you really got into this. And we have um, kind of our, our standard question. We call it the why make question. It's kind of silly, but what was your first memory of making something um, and it could be anything that, that led you onto this, this journey that you're, you're currently on now. Well, this is a few things I can, one of the few things I can remember about my childhood. It was a sandbox and I was a voracious sandbox builder. Uh, and uh, you know, 
had the hose standing by and, you know, just building huge, huge structures. Uh, my dad gave us a sandbox with ample sand. So that was the first thing I created, I think. Where did filmmaking then come in? From the, how, did, how did you progress literally from the sandbox to knowing that your medium was going to be film? Well, uh, let's see. I used to like to draw like uh, like Fantasyland kind of, uh, like Disneyland kind of futuristic places where you would go. Uh, you know, I, I, I saw, yeah, I saw a, a documentary about a, you know, ship going up the canals in, <clears throat> in the Netherlands. And uh, I thought that would make a great amusement park. Uh, amusement park with um, with canals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things. Uh, the filmmaker thing stuck with me. I really didn't do anything. And uh, well, I was a photographer when I was younger, but I really didn't do anything until I went to college and majored in film at the University of Iowa, mm-hmm. and fell in love with like experimental films and uh, German expressionism, which is you know like really handy get a job in america <laughs> right what, making, what kind of experimental films like uh like 1950s and 60s stuff um ballet mechanique and uh there was uh a guy named whitney who did i believe he did the stargate sequence for 2001 but his early films were like uh they had indian music and then I, you know, I like like Andy Warhol, of course, but some of the experimental filmmakers are they're kind of, oh Jonas Jonas Mikas, I liked his stuff. They're getting a little dim in my memory of what <laughs> experimental films I like. So these are the kind of things that were lighting you up as you were <clears throat> about to go to film school. No, they were lighting me up in film school. In in film school, okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was um, it was those times, you know, it was this was like nineteen. 70 that i went to college being in a classroom was not always on your mind then and was the was the iowa writers workshop was that where was that at the university of iowa yes so was was storytelling back there as a part of it or is it more just an interest in experimental film no i was it was actually the german expressionists more than the uh experimental filmmakers oh um i like the concept of experimental filmmaking but it was the german expressionists that really just oh give me 30 seconds of german expressionism because i am not familiar <laughs> with it at all well <clears throat> you have metropolis i mean everybody's oh, seen that's, metropolis yeah that's you? a great sci-fi and uh you know fritz lang he was this uh he did a lot of the german expressionistic films um he had one with peter lorry it was uh m and you know the uh, Caligari, you know, uh, which is they uh, is known for its painted shadows. So instead of lighting shadows, they would paint the shadows. It's just a lovely, lovely, <clears throat> bizarre. I've always liked the bizarre. You know, it doesn't. It's not really reflected well in my in my uh, documentaries on the surface, anyway. You know, between the wars in Germany, that that was the place to be. I, I, if I could go back in time and live anywhere, that would be where I'd go. Yeah, I'm not so sure. Uh, God, I saw so much French New Wave stuff. Well, I saw that, a lot of French New Wave, um, and uh, I actually got to see Godard. He came to campus, wow. and uh, he and his friends were both in uh, dark glasses, you know, like in uh, a dimly lit auditorium um, um filled with smoke no doubt <laughs> yes <laughs> you could smoke back then yes anyway yes. yeah i am jean-luc godard and you <laughs> you are not he couldn't speak english or, or he didn't speak english jumping ahead a little bit and then we'll let rob jump back a bit you've actually done some you know when you work with wmpb and you work with my old friend chip you guys did some pretty amazing documentary stuff especially mm-hmm. In the different drummer series, you talk about bizarre and offbeat, you know. Um, I can't remember which ones of those that you did. Some well, of that was obviously Jacob, who is another West Virginia filmmaker who right. is, is uh, definitely a different drummer in and of himself. But, right. 
Did you do the amazing Dolores? No, no. You did, I, that was Jacob again? Yeah, I did. Okay. I did uh, two on A. James Mansion, one before right. and one after his problem. Um, and the first one was called A. James Mansion, Your Public Servant. And uh, it was a real trip following him around. Uh, but, <laughs> I mean, I'd have to give you a clip of A. James for you to understand who A. James is. Uh, right. we'll, we'll, we'll put a link to it at the end of the well, I don't have podcast. it up. I, I don't know. We'll we'll try and find something on him. <laughs> Anyways, I just I I just want to give uh, you know back in the back in the oh, and then I did Patch Adams. I did Patch right, Adams. Right, you did the Patch Adams one. No, uh, no, the West Virginia Public, you know, at least WNPB, which is West Virginia Northern Public Broadcasting. You guys mm-hmm. did some wonderful documentaries back we in did. The, back in the period of time when I assume you could. Well, I was one of the ones who. Uh, we were doing a nightly news show that was terrible. God, I hope nobody's listening to this. Uh, Nobody will. <laughs> Trust me. And, just woodworkers. Uh, just woodworkers, John. <laughs> so that gave me a chance to uh, start making documentaries, uh, you know, little little tiny short ones to, to begin with. And eventually I became like a real champion for like, let's make it documentaries and stop doing news. And we did start to stop doing news, uh, Miracle of Miracles. And we've been a documentary place ever since, um, despite, I mean, sometimes it's been a real challenge to make documentaries because it takes so much time, too much time for, you know, um, state employees sometimes. Right. You know, I mean, you, you can't, if you got a crew that's paid hourly, um, it's hard to do, go off for a week. I mean, you can't do that. I'm salaried, you know, I could do that, but. I couldn't get anybody to go with me. Let's back up just a little bit and talk about um, the first time that you went to your uncle's house. Was it in 1965? No, I had gone a few times before. It was kind of a pilgrimage that all Nakashimas would, would pilgrimage to the compound. So, so what was that like? And did it just it blow your mind? What, what did it do to your head to set you off? Of, did it set you in this? direction of you know, curiosity about I never uncle. yeah I never saw anything like it before um and the older you got the more amazing you thought it was uh at first you know you're just saying oh my god they have a pool and uh <laughs> this is and big. then they built another pool um and uh it's actually a place where the workers uh during their lunch breaks in the summer go swimming um and they've done that since the 60s, I think. But it was really unusual. It was, um, you know, I didn't know what Japanese was, but I thought maybe it was Japanese. But I could see enough, you know, when I became a little older, you know, maybe 12, that it was kind of modernistic. It had so many buildings and so many nooks and crannies. When, you know, the family went with other families, in one house would be my Uncle Ted and his family, and another house would be Mary and her family, and then my dad, Victor, and his family, and we we're all in different houses. It was a great place to, you know, have a summer vacation. I got along with everyone. I got along with Kevin. Kevin, who was my age, uh, he was like one or two years younger than me, but that was George's only son. But George and, you know, the the Nisei generation, which, you know, is the first generation of Japanese born in the United States. So that was all my uncles and aunts and, and my dad. And they would always be talking about things that Japanese and uh, uh, West Coast things and uh, a lot about the sea. They would talk about the sea a lot because, you know, a lot of them love to go out into Puget Sound and, and go fishing, which I did a few times um, when I was out in Puget Sound and and when I was out in Washington. And you would get up, you know, before dawn and go in some little boat way out till you couldn't see land anymore. And you'd, I, I remember I'd catch sea bass, which were like, you know, they were huge. And they'd throw it back in. Now we want salmon. We don't want sea bass. <laughs> But anyway, it was a mysterious place. You know, I, I, 
I went to uh, Taliesin once in Wisconsin, and I could see kind of a kinship between the two places. And there was, except George really didn't uh, have a school there. George wasn't all about teaching people. Right. And and actually, just to fill in, Taliesin is Frank Lloyd Wright's home in Wisconsin. Right. So just to give some details. I'm just sort of curious, though. I mean, did you sort of recognize as a child that your uncle had built all of that? And that was, I mean, that's pretty amazing to think that, you know, that somebody had actually constructed all of that largely with their own hands. I mean, obviously with help. Was that uh, part of the amazement, the wonder of the place? Well, you? yeah, I, I I thought he built it all with his own hands, but of course he had plenty of help and uh, some really talented helpers, actually. When our family especially, and I, th- I think some the other families too, you know, there was a coffee table in our in our living room and it was a slab coffee table, one of the early ones, and uh, stacked with um, my father's medical journals, but also all the latest clippings from uh, George's latest appearance in life, look, Smithsonian, um, liturgical arts, strange, strange magazines. After bumping the head of uh, my head on the coffee table, which I constantly did, uh, cause, and it was hard as a rock, you know, I, I would look over all the George stuff and my my dad always, you know, at parties, people were always coming up to him and say, saying, "Oh, wow, this is a George Nakashima piece of furniture," and uh, and you know, and he'd tell them all about George. And uh, so we, you know, I was a student of George Nakashima, just like my whole family was from the time I could, you know, comprehend things. Did you actually ever? Did you actually ever see him make something? Did you ever make anything with him? No, no. Uh, it, you know, from the photographs, it looks like, uh, Mira and Kevin, uh, enjoyed that, but George wasn't, uh, all George really wanted to know from the nieces and nephews is, uh, when are they going to Japan and when are they going to start studying Japanese? That's all he really wanted to know. I mean, it was very important to him was you can see in the documentary that he, um, he wanted to go back to Japan, you know, and he, he was going back to Japan at a dangerous time. He didn't care. And he was very fluent in Japanese. I mean, that was a very important thing. Actually, my father, actually, my grandfather taught in a Japanese language school in Seattle. And uh, it's like a Hebrew school. And um, parents, you know, immigrant parents always, in a lot of, a lot of countries, wanted their kids to go back to the to the homeland and they didn't want them to go back and be like stupid you know not being able to speak the language not knowing anything about the culture so there was a japanese language school that most japanese kids went to and and when when george was growing up you know there was a norwegian language school i know in seattle and uh, and there was hebrew schools too i think there might have been some other germanic school maybe a german school I mean, after George came back from the United States, we're to the United States after his journey. We're, we're skipping ahead a little bit. I'm just sort of curious, later in life, did George want to go back to Japan after he had already settled in New Hope? Did he go back to Japan? or He went to the back to Japan many times, and he had, uh, they have department stores in Japan that have, um, like, art galleries in them. And uh, George showed his furniture in Japan many, many times. And he also was part of the Mingarin group, which was um, a group of artists and craftsmen who were trying to revive uh, the old arts of Japan with a new spin. And that was called the Mingarin group. And George had a, a, a line of furniture after the Koinoid uh, furniture called Mingarin. And actually, George has a uh, partnership with a woodworking firm in Japan, and they make George Nakashima furniture in the city of Takamatsu. It's a pretty big operation. George said would send over, like, the first thing he sent over was a, a conoid uh, chair in an incredible box. 
and uh, you can still see it there. They they go over to it and they take calipers and, and measure things and try to copy it as exact as possible. And it's that same chair that he shipped over in the same box many years ago. Yeah. Oh wow. So when when did the idea first come about of doing a documentary <clears throat> on on your uncle? Well, I was kind of stupid. I I, I saw. I saw in 1983, uh, like National Geographic Explorer, which was like the first season of that. And they did 15 minutes on George. And I figured that, that there were just all kinds of documentaries about George that I didn't know about. It was, it was the eighties, you know, and it was continued to be a wild time. I didn't really put my mind to it until I saw a, uh, a film on, gee, should I say this? I saw a film on another Japanese American artist. Um, okay, come on. Are we talking about Noguchi? <laughs> I saw a film on, on Noguchi. Yeah, okay. And, I mean, uh, obviously. I saw a film on, I guess I kind of gave it away. It's not a very I? broad field. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I saw a film on Noguchi, and I didn't think it was very good. And I said, well, what are the other films on Noguchi? And I saw that there weren't others made. There were, you know, that you could call, you know, extensive and uh, with great depth. So I um, started to realize there's probably only one chance to make a film about an artist. And once I started seeing how much money it would take, I really realized there would probably be only one chance to make a film about George. There were people along the way who, like, discouraged me that said, said that, like, George is over. And, you know, you don't need to make this film anymore. Fortunately, they were wrong. Well, I mean, I... I yeah. I, I don't... That seems to me an incredibly naive statement. He well, was over? I mean, in, in <laughs> what sense? I mean, he, even in, by the 80s, he was still a part, of, a huge part of the historical record of American furniture making. He was... Well, whether he was his work was still popular or not, is of little or no consequence. It's, well, when you're, when you're a documentary maker and you don't know your subject, I mean, you know enough to want to make the documentary, everyone knows more than you do. But yeah, everyone's a critic, too, of what you're doing. <laughs> and, yeah, and, I, you know, I'm gullible. I believe them, you know. So when Columbia University professors tell me, don't do something, it kind of shakes your confidence, you know. But in the end, I ended up doing what he said not to do. So what? What amplified your 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 steadfastness? I mean, you held you held on. Was there something, or that it happened so many times that it just like, okay, I'm sick of these people. I just got to do this. You mean beginning or once I got into it? Um, I I don't know. To you know, if there's, it, it just sounds like people like you were. Um, oh, I didn't get any critiques before. It was only after I started. Oh, okay, okay. It just it, it sounds like you're you know, you were rolling a giant stone up a hill the whole time. <laughs> I was. Yeah. <laughs> but I went into it very naively. Mm -hmm. Um I went into it, you know, by that point I had made maybe twenty documentaries, I'm not sure. Uh um some of them really bad. Mm -hmm. But I could shoot, I could edit, I could produce, I could interview. I could um, make the promo, and I was in my 30s. I was, I was invincible. <laughs> so I thought, this shouldn't be too hard because, like, there are two people. There's, there's two books written on George. The usual thing, like, on, on uh, American Experience is that there's a book that's associated with the uh, documentary being made. So you have that author who knows all things about uh, the topic. Of course, they supplement it with like incredible filmmakers and uh, and tons and tons of research. The main book about George was written by George. Uh, um, the second book written about George was an uh, exhibition book for his one-man show in uh, New York, the American Crafts Museum. It's no longer there, I don't think. And that was an exhibition book, really. And it had been 12 years after Derek Ostergaard had written that book. So his, it wasn't like he wrote it yesterday. 
I wanted to go to places that like Ostergaard uh, didn't go. My main problem was that I thought that there were tons of experts. It wasn't until I shot the majority of the documentary that I discovered that no one knew anything about the first half of George's life, which oh. was his hero's journey, which was his yeah. journey of discovery. And no one knew. There was no experts on that. And uh, I was I was told that there were experts in India. No one who worked with George was still alive. Uh, there were people who worked right after George on the project that he started. There was one friend that was alive, and she she told me what she could, but she didn't know a lot about his uh, journey, I don't think. So it was at that point, maybe five years in, where I went, uh-oh, I'm really in <laughs> trouble. Because this is like the key to his understanding his life. All the experts began the minute he made his first piece of furniture, which was like uh, 35 or something. Well, actually, so curiously enough, so in when you started this, it was the mid '80s, right? No, it was uh, when? When did you it start? It was uh, 1990. Oh, it's 1990. Oh, okay. No, no, no. <laughs> 1990s when he died. Yeah. Right. Uh, no, it was 2000. Yeah, you started it 20 years. Well, ago. no, actually, I was gonna. When you, the first, I, I'm just trying to establish. You know, you, you've made a couple interesting comments in that that uh, you only get one crack at this, and I'm trying to think. You started this well past the point when you could have talked to George himself about your burning questions. You didn't really get a chance to interview George in the initial phases of doing this documentary because he'd already passed. Yes. Is that, yes. Okay. And that was. I was supposed to get to that, actually. That was my stupidity, because I could have interviewed him. Uh, Chip claims we were all loaded up and ready to interview him, and there was a snowstorm. But I don't remember this at all. Yeah, it's uh, everything in the documentary is are found interviews with George. They're, they're extensive. I mean, you guys found a lot of stuff. Well. It seems like it. Yeah. What do you mean, you guys? <laughs> you guy, you, you guy. <laughs> yes. No. <laughs> Sorry. I, let me say that well, again. One of them, you, you, John. One of them was um, in uh, the guest house, you know, the uh, on, in the compound. Um, Eric does. I'm not familiar with it. Cause I, I, okay. I'll be honest. I've never been there. I've, there I've was yet to big go. cabinets, you know, you can imagine a cabinet maker who builds houses. There's a lot of cabinets. They were all empty, except for like in the very back of one cabinet was like one VHS tape. That VHS tape became what I called the Gnostic George tape, because it was like it was like discovering the you know the Gnostic Bible, um, and uh, it was in terrible condition. It was on VHS. It was shot on a real inferior form of video. Um, but the interviewer was this um, gay German professor from Trenton who was super smart. I tried to get in touch with his family, and he doesn't didn't have any remaining family that I could find. But it was a really good interview. The other one was for a uh, it was for a documentary that Pittsburgh did uh, WQED in Pittsburgh, and they did a uh, extensive. Uh, I'm sure the crew was ready to kill the producer. It was like <laughs> an hour and a half interview, maybe, maybe two hours. I'm not sure. And uh, it's the one in Georgian profile, and um, which was really an odd choice, uh, but I had to live with it. And then there was a uh, an inter interview for the local cable access. That that was another valuable interview. And then uh, Studs Turkle interviewed him, and Terry Gross interviewed him when she, when she was just starting. There was an incredible interview that was transcribed, and it was a oral history, but the tapes were lost. And that would have been a super valuable one to have. But you had that transcription, right? Yeah, but uh, I didn't have George saying it, you know? Right. Uh, I mean, that's why in the first half of the documentary, there's a lot of narration Mm -hmm. um, because there's no one else to tell the story. 
Right. I, I didn't want to do a a George Nakashima voice imitator. I didn't want to do that. Yeah. Well, no, but interestingly enough, because again, I know I know a fair amount about this because I've talked to both you and Chip over the years. Mm-hmm. One of your big decisions that you really struggled with was whether you would narrate this yourself or whether you would hire uh, Peter Coyote. No, right? <laughs> no, I said that that is the person that narrates all of the Ken Burns documentaries. And what's Ken Burns going to do when he dies? I have no idea. He'll hire a, a Peter Coyote impersonator. But no, I mean, you really struggled with whether it was yours was the right voice to narrate this. Right. And that's interesting because the film seems to come so uniquely from your perspective. I can't, after having watched it twice now, Rob's watched it three times. Whoa, congratulations. (laughs) Um, um, I can't imagine another perspective other than yours to describe this journey of George's life. Right, and... uh... It does give you the opportunity to uh, make educated guesses uh, because I become a character in the documentary. But you're right. You do kind of leave it at the end. You're, you ask these questions. What would George come to embrace the so-called imperfections inside the trees? Those questions that you ask at the end, you kind of leave it. It's like, hey, I gave you this huge plate. Now you need to work on answering some of these questions yourself. I mean, it's... That's interesting. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. It, it kind of is like he was a mystery to you. You solved some of the mystery, but you didn't solve the whole mystery. Sure. I mean, you know, it was news to everyone. A lot of the stuff in that documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> when I interviewed George's wife, who was still alive, yeah. um, she would quote from Soul of a Tree. Mm-hmm. It does seem like an incredible um, journey of discovery, and and there's a couple of a couple of things that I think that are incredibly poignant about it. I mean, so one, you know, the first half of George's life is this journey. I mean, he graduates from architecture school, he goes to Paris, I believe. He's a he's an architect, and uh, this is, I guess, sort of in the, the Bauhaus mo- movement, the modernist movement. Is it? He's very disaffected by that. He then goes to Japan, which is where his cultural roots are. Well, he wasn't and, totally disaffected by the modernists. Modernists. Well, it doesn't, right. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, if you look at his drawings, you know, he designed several modernist buildings when he was at MIT. Right. Well, and then ultimately he, he ends up at a, an ashram in India working on a fairly modernist building. Right on working on a, a a very minimalist space, and this is all before he actually really makes anything as George Nakashima furniture maker, cabinet maker. What did he refer to himself as a furniture maker? Right. He only accepted woodworker. Woodworker, George Nakashima woodworker. Right, and you know, and all of this, and then he returns to America. And how long is he here before he before World War Two starts, and he ends up in, in the internment camp? Just a little over a year, I think. Oh, wow. Right. Not long yeah. at all. And then, I mean, it's just it's an incredible journey. And, um, I mean, talk about a little bit about just that, that dis- discovering that process. Because you said that was the route to his life that, that really made him who he was. And nobody knew anything about this. You're the one that, that basically dug this all up for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, he, he outlines it in Soul of a Tree, but why he <laughs> ran through that section, you know, there's a lot of detail that he could have given. George was very, um, he was a very good spinner of his own image. Like when you met him, uh, Eric, um, you saw how charming he is. I mean, here's a guy right after World War II who's full Japanese selling furniture to New Yorkers. You know, <laughs> he had to be charming. Yeah, I mean, and he called himself um, a druid. But I, my theory always is that he used that instead of Shinto. Mm-hmm. Um, but he never wavered from that. Even long after the war, he always called himself a druid. Well, I mean, he was a worshiper of trees in many ways. I mean, whatever your cultural reference is. Right, but when would he have encountered druidism? Uh he stopped in, uh, on his worldwide tour, he stopped 
in England to get his teeth fixed, and that's it. I don't think he ran out to Stonehenge <laughs> and started worshiping. Well, maybe that maybe that Eurocentric <laughs> title just made it a little bit more acceptable to white ears. Yeah, I you mean know? that's my theory. Yeah, that's. Um, I I believe that. Yeah, I'm, and he told his story the same way every time. The unfortunate thing was that his story was you know two hours long, <laughs> right. maybe, maybe three and, hours long. Right, and if he was anything like my father who told stories uh, ad nauseum, a lot of the times the facts were, you know... Probably the facts, irrelevant. The fa- <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. the, facts, the facts were irrelevant. The facts, the facts were malleable, you know, indeed to who the audience was um, right. and uh, what the story was. Well, yeah, I mean, George uh, was wrong. I discovered George was wrong about some things, and... Uh... I think that's the ultimate reason why probably discovering George's life after the fact was probably a more accurate picture of who he was, because we have a tendency to color in between the lines when we talk about ourselves, which is something that, well, not necessarily a dispassionate third party person would do. I mean, you wanted to, you wanted to get the whole story. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, you spent 20 years doing it. So what was that 20-year journey like? I mean, what what were the ups and downs in the discovery of, of, a, of, a, of a project that lasted two decades? Well, I mean, one thing was life. Um, my wife got breast cancer. Um, two of my brothers died. Um, a nephew died. Um, <clears throat> And, uh, oh, and I got cancer, but it's gone, um, I think. And, but then there was the phases, you know, I was like, there was, there was a time in about 10 years in where I, I was talking to my, uh, college aged neighbor and I said, it's a good thing I didn't do the documentary when I was supposed to have it done, which was like within the year of shooting it Um, because I don't, I didn't know enough. I didn't know enough about filmmaking. I didn't know enough about George and uh, it would have been a, a marginal documentary. And that might've been the only documentary made about him. I mean, that would have been one of the great regrets of my life. Looking back like right now and seeing this documentary I made 20 years ago. And saying, oh, my God, what garbage. Yeah. So, you know, I suffered a lot for waiting 20 years. Got a lot of crit- criticism. But I'm glad I did. Or I'm, I'm becoming glad, anyway. Well, I mean, I think it sounds like there were certainly aspects of discovery. I, you know, I mean, yeah. it seems to me at points that you didn't have the whole story. So until you have all the pieces of the puzzle... You couldn't have really done it justice, right? Is, is that is that a an incorrect uh, interpretation of it? Right, but you know, to have the courage to say that, I you know, I didn't. I really didn't have the courage to say that until now. You know, really. No, I mean, one of the things that um, that Chip told me was that it was many years after the fact that you learned that that George basically he didn't apprentice. But he latched onto this woodworker in the internment camp, and that was a vital piece of the puzzle, which you didn't discover until many years down the road. Is that incorrect, or is... that is incorrect? Okay, well there you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, George uh, talked about him in Soul of a Tree, and he he talked about him in these interviews. The thing was that he had forgotten his name. And every interview he did, uh, he uh, he would say, and if you're out there listening to this interview, uh, if you could contact me, I would really like to talk to you. Oh, my goodness. So I was looking through the Library of Congress, you know, the um, War Relocation Authority, WRA, took photos. Um, they hired a bunch of uh, uh, WPA photographers, some of the greats. And uh, they took photos of the internment, and or we don't call it internment anymore, by the way. That's a euphemism. 
Oh, what's a, what is what is the what is the PC way of well of taking a group of people and putting them in a prison camp? Imprisoned. <laughs> okay, yeah. I can go with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, because internment just sounds it's not not harsh enough. So anyway, I was going through um, the photos of George working in the camp, and adjacent to those photos, like the next photo was a woodworker. Somehow I found out this guy's name and I called up his uh, son and his son had severe MS um, and he wasn't long for the world, I don't believe. Um, And he confirmed, yes, indeed, that was his father. And um, there's a Japanese-American site that talks about the camps and uh, <clears throat> they have an encyclopedia encyclopedia. And uh, because of my research, he made it into the uh, uh, encyclopedia. Um, there was a graduate student that researched him heavily and uh, really interesting guy though. He was a Issei, you know, he's first generation. He was the immigrant, a real generous guy. So in a sense, you discovered his name. Yeah, you didn't. You didn't discover. So it was that. like I could tell George, but it was too late. Right. Yeah. No. So I mean, that still is a. I mean, I don't think that diminishes the discovery in some sense because this is something your your uncle quested after. He wanted to know who this person was, and obviously, this person was a pivotal person in his and uh, in, in basically the the sort of the culmination of his journey. Right. I mean, he would not be allowed to study with this man in Japan. He was a daiku. There's higher level levels of daiku that build like temples, but even I, I think you're going to have to explain that one, John. Oh, tell us what a daiku is. A dai yeah. a daiku is a Japanese home builder carpenter. Back then, they they kind of studied the land for a year, and it took them a year to get the materials together and uh, cut the lumber. You know, they didn't have lumber yards and, uh, and they'd use all those complex Japanese joineries and uh, very odd tools for the Westerners. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, there's one that looks like a crowbar. And I've always want, I've always wanted to see someone to use one of those, but. Uh, oh, it's a wood planer, isn't it? Like no, it actually... looks like a, a crowbar with a hook on the end. Yeah. Oh, it's probably some sort of PV to move large logs around with. No, no, no. They're using it in fine woodworking. Which yeah, no. I, oh. think they sur- I think they use it to, like, surface, like, to... Oh, okay. Yeah, I've seen a picture of it, and I-, I think you actually... I mean, I think you have a picture of it or two in your movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's, it's um... wild. It's just like, they're doing that to that to, get it to <laughs> do that? Wow. Right. That takes some accuracy. I remember right. commenting on that when I first saw it. <laughs> As you know, in the movie, he uh, he admired them and studied them, but he couldn't be couldn't be one of them in Japan. He could only be one in imprisoned in the desert of Idaho. And and that really was the 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 final piece of his journey to becoming George Nakashima woodworker. Yeah. Now there was I I didn't include it, but he did make one room of furniture for the. Uh, model room in the uh, Indian uh, ashram in the in the building called Golkhand. It was like a mock-up room. The people in India thought that George designed the furniture for the whole building, but um, George himself in his oral history and a few other places says that they didn't copy his furniture. Right. So this would be an instance of George making furniture before he returned to the United States. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. No, I'm just trying to make it clear. And of course, uh, I would encourage everybody to watch the documentary. We are talking a little inside baseball here, but um, the the very first half of the documentary all is about George's journey before he returns to the United States. And, uh, and then, as I said, you know, goes on the path that becomes George Nakashima woodworker. Um Another curious question, since we're, you know, as as we as we sort of go towards the end of George's life, what was the origins of the peace table and the and the Nakashima Peace Foundation? Do 
you think that came out of his spiritual journey in India? Or is that, what, what's your ruminations on where the peace tables came from? And these were large altars that Nakashima Woodworks produced. Uh, there's, there's three of them. One which was produced during his life was it's at the, the first one, which is at St. John's the Divine in New York City. And then the second one is in, in India, right? Yeah. In Oroville. And the third one is in Moscow, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what what do you think the origins of the the whole peace table? Well, there's definitely a connection between his love of Chartres, you know, the Cathedral of Chartres, and uh, Golkhan. It was like two... And Golkhan was the ashram in India. Right, it was a dormitory, actually, in India. And um, what he admired was, um, you know, unknown craftsmen who would struggle and build these places. And that happened in 14th century, I believe, in, in Chartres. And it happened when George was in India in the, uh, in the 30s. There was something about sacred spaces. And he, uh, he, did, he did a few churches, and he did one with Mira, and he did uh, some altars. He did a monastery. I don't know. There was something about building something that would be used for spiritual purposes that attracted him. Probably his feeling of uh, karma yoga. Karma yoga is what George learned in India, that the act of creation can be just as um, potent as praying all day or meditating all day. I think he had needed to do things occasionally that... um, that were for sale, that, you know, they were only for, used for spiritual purposes. And he did that throughout his whole career, I think. Yeah, he actually built a, you know, helped design a church with Antonin Raymond. Uh, a few churches, I think. And who is Antonin Raymond? I'm not familiar with Oh, Antonin Raymond was the architect that George worked for in, in, in Japan. And, and, and uh, they built this church in Karizawa, and it was, um, it was a very, very rustic church. So whether George influenced that or whether George uh, picked up influences from that, uh, we'll never know. There, there's a really cool quote. You're talking about his yoga that, that Chaman Law Gupta says about George's woodworking being his yoga. Sh- Shaman Law. Shaman Law Gupta, yeah. <laughs> That, I, I love that quote where he's just like, you know, Golconde was his yoga. His woodwork was his yoga. I love it, too. Yeah. Yeah. That was that, I, that was a beautiful quote. Mm-hmm. He's a beautiful man. Yeah. He, he became friends with George after George left. And then the peace tables fit perfectly in that because it was a uh, it was creating them was a part of uh, his. I don't know how to put it, but it seems to fit in sort of that karmic yoga sense of mm-hmm. he was trying to create peace through work, if if that is indeed what he was trying to do. And and this is at the end of his life, too. I mean, he only saw one of them completed. And was the Nakashima Peace Foundation created after his death, or was that something that was created during his life? Mm, can't say for sure. I know it costs a lot of money. <laughs> Very much a part of his spiritual journey, though. Yeah. Yeah. If you watch the National Geographic... Explorer, which is on YouTube, I think they're cutting the peace table in, in that. Right, which was obviously, it was a huge undertaking because it was, uh, I mean, they had to have a special machine to, a special bandsaw to uh, cut that huge slab of wood and put it together. But uh, no, it's a very, very interesting notion. So, um, you know, start, starting to wrap this up here a little bit. I mean, I remember when we first talked about you doing this documentary back in 1990. And I think you asked me what I knew of George. I think one of the first things I tried to impress upon you was that at that point, I was probably about seven, eight years into my woodworking career, is that George was an icon in in large part because his work was copied. It was uh, at that point, the word Nakashimov was a, a, a very... It was a, you know, a, a verb in the woodworking world, in the design world. It's like, ah, oh, I made a Nakashimov. 
Um, I mean, not so much the butterfly key because that was in the popular vernacular, although George definitely popularized the, the butterfly key as a joinery on his, on his big, um, you know, live edge tables, but his work was copied and you can view that as flattery, but I'm just sort of curious what your take on it is, because to me, it's, it's beyond derivative. It's it's appropriation and it's it's cultural appropriation because he took this rich journey and other people sort of, you know, without taking the journey, just copied the work. Well, some people do it beautifully and some people do it horribly. Well, I was talking to John Benson um, from Fine Woodworking and he was saying, you look at every woodworker's um portfolio no matter what style they do it and somewhere in there is a george nakashima slab table woodworkers you wouldn't even imagine doing it have done it he was a creator and creators get copied i mean what can you do about that right i mean is it i I guess the question is is it flattery or is it appropriation i think it's flattery i think it's flattery but uh you know you're gone (laughs) i mean you you can't take flattery beyond the grave. Um, That's true. Yeah. Now, I, I remember once being at the, the big uh, trade show in High Point. Um, I had never been to it before. And I walked into a booth of somebody who was doing Nakashimas. And there was a dead copy of the Conway chair. Right. And, and I walked up to him and I said, you know, you can't do that. <laughs> and, of course, the person looked at me like, well, what's this fucking asshole saying? I'm saying... That is somebody else's, uh, you know, intellectual property. That is George Nakashima. You cannot do that. And he basically said, fuck off. And, uh, you know, at that point, I was going to say, well, I'm going to give Mirror a call. But, you know, he was some two-bit little woodworker. And, <laughs> but it was just interesting. It was just like, that's not yours to copy. Well, I mean, you have George. Either George has two categories, you know. I mean, he has his tables with incredible character and, uh, you know, imperfect wood and, you know, all kinds of uh, wood, um, you know, history recorded on, on the slab of wood. And then you have his designs, you know, that are, um, some of them are pretty standard, you know, like, like the mirror chair and uh, the new chair, but those are wonderful designs too. I think, I think they're just, um, you know, you have to really appreciate really appreciate the nuance and uh, kind of look at them. Uh, yeah, you have to see the subtlety in them, the, like Mira talks about, the subtle curves that you wouldn't even notice, and the beauty, beauty and simplicity, and beauty in um, knowing how to balance something. So really, his most wild tabletop and his most simple chair are in my mind pretty far apart from from the nuanced perspective of having studied this man now for well over 20 years you're you're well informed by that mm. so. well it's just my guess you know <laughs> yeah i you know i made a lot of uh you know i said some things in the narration that uh no one else has said but when i said them i was they were really researched and I was really confident that they were true. There were times when I was really confident that I had to make a guess that at this point I have to make a guess and, uh, and it has to be an informed guess, but it's a guess, but the majority of it isn't that way. I mean, the majority of it is, is totally documentable. Um, I'm not going to do it, but somebody else can <laughs> Well, and, and, you know, the, the interesting thing about documentary, especially after somebody's past, is, is that how quantifiable is the meaning of somebody's life? Ultimately, it is kind of a, an odd mix of objective and subjective. Yeah, some of it's a guessing game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How could you know his true intent? You At, at best, you can, you can make a, a summation. You can... You can study the ingredients. You can find as many of the ingredients as possible. Right. And then if you found enough ingredients, then you can feel pretty good about a guess. <laughs> you can hypothesize a recipe. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which is, you know, what I sometimes had to do. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I mean, you, you did a wonderful job. I mean. Uh, well, thank you. Wait till you see the extras. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm sure they're going to show up in my mailbox any moment, right? Uh, <laughs> ten days from now, maybe. Sweet. You know, ten days from now. No. Do you have anything else you'd like to ask, Rob? Well, I guess, yeah, I do. I, I, I really loved the music of the ah. documentary. And the trio of, of, of Jacob, Yaffe, and yeah. then Steve Gorn, and mm-hmm. uh, Ben Wertheimer, is that how you say his name? Yeah. And then also the Clawhammer banjo of, of, of Dwight Diller. Yeah. So that that trio of different styles just worked wonderfully yeah. to to for the, the soundtrack of of George's life and your journey. Mm-hmm. The third time around, I watched the movie mostly to hear what <laughs> the music because you know it, it it literally is just you know it's background, but you know and that's how it's supposed to be. But it's also a whole nother level. Listen, well, I've to always. So, uh, music's always been super important in my documentaries. It really gives it another wonderful, wonderful layer to, to dig into. Yeah. I mean, um, Jacob Yaffe, who had to, he was the composer yeah. who performed most of the music. And he's, mm-hmm. he's, he's that big Hollywood guy. And yeah. D- he did was, Infinity Chamber and uh, Best Shot. Yeah. He, so yeah, he's a, he's got a track record. He's, he's a great guy. And he, he did it for the love of it. Okay, so you've got those that three combinations of different styles of different music. What was it just running into stuff? Like what what inspired that in that combination? Well, um I love me I love Indian music, so mm-hmm. that was like a no brainer. I love Hammond's family music and uh you know, Appalachian mm-hmm. mountain music. I love Dwight's music. In the case of using the Appalachian banjo, Paul Hammer banjo in mm-hmm. In Seattle, uh, <laughs> I was told by a traditional music person that something called the classical banjo would be more appropriate for oh, um, <laughs> for Seattle. And uh, I listened to classical banjo, and I did not like it at all. It didn't fit. No. Oh yeah, because some of those uh, those the tenement pictures of Seattle, those big, vast black and white photos. Those are just yeah, that's that's exquisite and yeah, yeah it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. <laughs> and then to me, like uh, uh, Appalachian banjo music and fiddle music is America, you know. And yeah. I just so too bad if it's inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were they were good choices, and it made for a beautiful soundtrack to the movie. Well, John, we really love to thank you for joining well, us uh this is an incredible feat um this was a good rehearsal uh, now when are we going to do it <laughs> yeah yeah I think oh, we're, gonna, we're, we're gonna actually do the interview next week okay right. we're doing the no, right that's right. good rehearsal no i it's a wonderful documentary i'm i'm one behind rob i'm gonna I'll watch it another two or three times <laughs> and again i think you know for our purposes and for and for most people who wonder why people make this is an informative piece of work, and uh, you know I, I you know I think it's courageous that you stuck through twenty years and and produced a, a wonderful piece. So we'd like to thank you again. I'd like to give you one more opportunity to shamelessly plug it. Um, well, it's at nakashimadocumentary.com. I would like to say I. I um... You asked me this earlier. I really couldn't give up once I started. It was, uh, I couldn't do that to my family. I couldn't do that for Japanese Americans. I couldn't do it for wood- woodworkers, uh, people who collected. You know, I just, I knew I had to do it. And there was like no escape. You know, there were times when people say what said to me, why don't you, why don't you just give up? And uh, I just kept going. Well, the, the value of a good idea is you can't give up. I mean, I think that's it. I mean, often, a lot of times, people spend their lifetime solving a problem and never do. Uh, it doesn't mean that the journey wasn't worth it. And I, yeah. you know, again, I got to congratulate you on on completing the journey. And I and I uh, I wish it all the success out there. Again, thank you, John Nakashima, for joining us on Why Make. All right, Why Make? Why Make? You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed 
or a direct download from our website, y-make.com. This episode is currently brought to you by the Holy Pockets of Rob and Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash why make podcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at why make pod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.